So again, let yourself be comfortable and at ease. So in the course of this uh, fall, uh, it's felt very important after some direct addressing of what happened in September 11th and the aftermath to go back to some of the most fundamental and universal teachings in the Buddhist tradition as a kind of ground or refuge, if you will, for reflection and understanding in times of change and difficulty, which in some ways may be more common for us as human beings than the other times, but they certainly are now. And as, a, as um, we said last week, over this four-week period starting then and going up close to Christmas, we'd like to go through the teachings on the four divine states of heart, known as the Brahma-viharas or the divine abodes of loving-kindness, compassion, uh, joy, and equanimity or peace that are considered natural to the awakened heart of every human being. O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, do not forget the true nature of your heart, even though it may be covered at times by fear or confusion, hurt or anger. Underneath, as we release the small sense of ourself, the body of fear, it's called, we touch that which is undying. Compassion, the second of these natural abodes of the heart, is described traditionally as the quivering of the heart in the face of pain or sorrow or loss of any other being, ourselves or any other living being, when we really let it in. So this passage from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, which I've read many times, who speaks about the awakened heart, he says, if you search for the awakened heart, If you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there's nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this sadness is unconditioned. It is experienced because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is like pure, raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. And yet it is the opening of this tender heart, and this alone, that has the power to heal our world. Compassion, then, is described as the movement of the heart in sympathy with another being, not as pity, which separates us, oh, that poor person there, 
as if somehow their suffering were different than ours, but a connected understanding from Pema Chodron, she tells the story of a young woman who wrote to her and said that she found herself in the Middle East in a small town surrounded by people who were yelling and jeering and threatening to throw stones at her and her friends because they were Americans. Of course she was terrified And what happened next is important because suddenly she identified with every person throughout history who has ever been scorned or hated. She understood what it was like to be despised for any reason, ethnic group, racial background, sexual preference, gender. Something in her heart cracked wide open and she stood in the shoes of millions of oppressed people and saw from their perspective. She even understood her shared humanity with those who hated her. This sense of deep connection is awakening the great heart of compassion. And I read that, I've read that, I don't know, some weeks ago, particularly out of concern for all that's been happening in the Middle East and the war that is Um, a very sad thing in many ways because there's so much suffering as a result of it. Um, There are millions of people um, who already were suffering in Afghanistan from the civil war and from the drought and so forth. And further across the Middle East, um, and more than anyone, it's the women and it's the children. And a lot of the earlier cause, if we look, has to do with oil, it has to do with the arms uh, exporting that we and other countries do. America is the largest exporter of weapons in the world, who has armed many of the despots of the region, and then ends up in conflict with them. But unfortunately, the people who suffer most are the common people as is often the case. Um, Another passage to read to you, if I can find it here. Oh, I don't see it, but I remember what it said. It said, a woman sits in a small slum in Cairo holding a sick child with two others crying and very little money, not enough for medicine, while only a few kilometers away at the docks there are great ships that are unloading tanks and military apparatus worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, um, none of which will go to medicine to her or anyone else's children. And everybody knows this. I'm not telling us, you know, something that's new or a surprise. Um, I think, in fact, as we sit and let ourselves quiet in meditation, as we sit with a 
respectful attention to this human predicament that we're born into, we discover how much we need compassion to hold this world and all that comes into us. We need it first for our own lives, for our bodies and healing, for the fears and self-judgment, the loneliness and struggles, the fear and conflict and betrayal and longing, the sickness or accidents that have happened, the trauma, the divorce, all those things. It's not like suffering is a stranger to you, even though we, for the most part, live quite privileged lives in terms of our outer circumstance. Still, sickness and aging and loss and difficulty are part of our lives too. And perhaps before we speak about anything further, we might ask, how do we touch the suffering and sorrow that is woven into our own life? With judgment, with aversion, with fear. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Continue such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me, threw me down, robbed me. Abandon even such thoughts and live in love. Even if something terrible has happened to you, do you continue that? Or can you release it and live in the heart again. But as Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche's passage points out, when we sit quietly, we recognize that it's not just our own difficulties of life that are present for us, but that we carry the sorrows of the world as close as our own breath. Whether it's the Middle East or Africa or Burma, or Kosovo, or the rainforests, or the facts that we do send weapons to so many places and then wonder why we're not safe, instead of sending medicines and food and seeds for people to grow. You know, and then there's the sadness of knowing that the kind of world that we live in in a prosperous way, also lives at the expense of so many creatures and so much of our environment. What is man without the beasts, says Chief Seattle. If all the beasts were gone, men would die from great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. We carry that as we carry within us the knowledge of the homeless people on our own streets, even in a very prosperous county like Marin, or a very prosperous community, the greater Bay Area. 
we carry the injustice and the racism that surround us, the huge prisons that we built more money than schools, you know that it's 20 times more likely per capita that an American will spend years in prison than that a person in China. And a hundred times more likely that you will spend years in prison if you're an African American than if you're a person who lives in China. We have 25% of the people in prison of the entire world locked in the prisons in our country. And as human beings, how can we not be deeply touched? When I speak of compassion, as I have in other years, I'm reminded of this experience some few years ago, uh, attending one of the meetings that Mikhail Gorbachev uh, called in San Francisco for world leaders, the World Forum, to kind of vision a new way that we might live on the earth. And as one of the participants and presenters at one point, I signed up to go to a forum on forgiveness and crimes against humanity. And I thought in a naive way that maybe it would be about international law. But it wasn't. It was this panel of people, each speaking very personally. There's this ballroom in the Fairmont Hotel with 500 or 1,000 people, you know, sitting around. And, and there was this panel of people, each telling the story of their sorrows. A person from Guatemala whose family had been disappeared a man from Sarajevo whose best friend was killed by sniper fire as they walked arm in arm to the market. Jose Ramos Horta, who won the Nobel Prize from Timor, Peace Prize, speaking of his people's suffering. A man from the gulags in Russia. And they all talked about the need for us as human beings to find a way to apologize to one another to do something different with the sufferings than continue it, to acknowledge what has happened and find a new way. <coughs> and one of the most hopeful stories I know has came to me <coughs> from a friend who was recently in South Africa and brought, had brought a number of uh, members of the community in Bosnia and in Kosovo to learn from the Peace and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and how that process has been going. And one of the things that they have done as a part of their process of reconciliation is that the island prison where Nelson Mandela was kept for 27 years. Does anybody remember the name of that island? Bobanon. Yeah. Uh, Bobanon? Robin Island, Robin Island, that Robin Island has become a national monument. And you can go to Robin Island and the former prisoners and the former guards both work there together to show you around and teach you about what happened. 
so that it doesn't happen again. That's an amazingly um, brave thing for South Africa to have done. So at the end of this panel, where they all talked about how hard it was to forgive when it was your own family and your friends and your community, and there was so much injustice, the old Russian man, most of them were young, said, yeah, but then as I spent all these years in prison in Siberia and saw the people dying, I began to reflect about the Russian people in our country and the Bolshevik Revolution and the millions that were killed, the white Russians, and, and about the uh, famines that happened when Lenin took over and they tried to collectivize the agriculture and under Stalin the terrible camps and what happened in World War II with the Russians fighting the Germans, but then even the the Russians who were captured by the Germans when they were brought back because they failed as soldiers, they were sent to prison camps. And he said, and then then we had the the communists after World War II, and he kind of reeled off the tens of millions of people, he said, and finally I said, it's not just them, it's not just the bad guys, the Stalins of the world, but it's us, it's all of us. And if we are to have any different life, it can't be by blaming some person, but by looking in our own hearts for something different. And Anchon Pond spoke last, a young Cambodian man who I've known for years since I met him in the refugee camps in Cambodia, and told the story of the destruction of his village by the Khmer Rouge. The temple was burned, the school was destroyed, people were forced marched out of the village, and anyone who knew anything of the establishment was killed. And he said, I had a teacher, a music teacher, and he knew he would die an old man. He took me aside, he said, they're coming, let me show you how to cut down a bamboo and make the traditional Cambodian flute, how you make the holes that get our melodies to come out. Let me teach you the way. And he did in his last week or two of life. And let me show you the songs of our people. And then this old man, like the rest of the educated people, was marched out and killed. And Anchon Pan looked up after he told this story And he said, the only way that I've been able to live with this is this. And he pulled the little flute that he carried out of his pocket. And he said, I have to play you the song that my elder taught to me so that it will not die. And he played this music and people were just sitting there weeping. There is an ancient and eternal truth that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. When we come to enter the path of awakening and of the liberation of the mind and heart, 
if we are to truly awaken, if we're even to be able to stay in our bodies and love this sacred earth, we need compassion for ourselves and every other being. There's no other way we can open. It would be too hard. We need to discover within ourselves this great heart of the Buddha and to bow to this mysterious human realm with its vast tragedies and its unspeakable beauty. Overcome any bitterness, says the Sufis. Overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of suffering that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world, each of us carries a part of the world in our heart. We are each endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. And you are called upon to meet that in joy instead of self-pity. A story for you from the time of the Buddha of a demon, a particular demon, who uh, was called in Sanskrit Krodha Bhakayaga, but the translation is the anger-eating demon. So once upon a time, said the Buddha, there lived a demon who had a particular diet. He fed on the anger of others. You may have encountered him in various forms in this world. And his feeding ground was primarily the human world where there was no lack of nourishment. In families, national, racial hatred, To stir up a war wasn't very difficult for him, and whenever he succeeded in causing a war, he could gorge himself without much effort, because once a war starts, hatred multiplies by its own momentum, affecting even normally friendly people. So the demon's food supply became rich and abundant, and he was quite content. But as it often happens with successful people, he began to be rather overbearing. One day when he was feeling bored of just stirring up trouble in the human realm, he thought, maybe I should try it in the realm of the gods. So on reflection, he chose the heaven ruled by Saka, the lord of the gods in this particular story. And by magic power, he transferred himself to that heavenly realm and was fortunate enough to arrive when Saka, the king of this particular realm was absent. And there was no one in the large audience hall. Without much ado, the demon went and seated himself upon Saka's empty throne, waiting quietly to see what would happen, which he hoped would bring him a good meal. After a while, some of the other gods came to the hall, and Carr hardly believed their own divine eyes when they saw this huge and ugly demon sitting on the throne, grinning, squatting there. Recovering from their shock, they started to lament and shout, Oh, you ugly demon, how dare you sit on the throne of our benevolent and beautiful deity of the Lord of this heavens? Get out of here! What a crime! What what cheek! (laughs) 
you should be thrown headlong off the throne and down into the lowest realms, into a boiling cauldron. Get out of here. You should be quartered alive. We don't like your kind in our realm. And as the gods were shouting and beginning to grow truthfully more upset and more and more angry, the demon was quite pleased. Because from moment to moment, he grew in size, in strength, in power. And the anger, as he absorbed into his system, started to pour from his body as a kind of great red glowing mist enveloping the hall that kept the gods at a distance and their radiance dimmed as this demon filled the space. And suddenly, as the story tells, a luminous glow appeared at the other end of the hall and Saka, the king of the gods, emerged, rather unshaken by what he saw. The smoke screen created by the anger of the gods was parted, and he politely approached the usurper of his throne and said, Ah, a demon, welcome, my friend. Please remain seated. I can take another chair. Are you comfortable? May I offer you a drink of hospitality? The Amrita is not bad this year. Or perhaps you'd prefer a stronger brew, the Vedic Soma that we have. We have a nice bottle here from only, you know, dating whatever the date was. Shall I open it? Shall I open it for you? And while Saka spoke, these friendly words, and tried to ply the demon with the best of hospitality, the demon began shrinking more and more quickly to a diminutive size. Yes. It's a big word for small, right? Diminutive size. and finally disappeared, trailing behind a whiff of smoke which likewise dissolved into a dream. So that's your bedtime story, right? (laughs) Feeding of the demons. So how do we touch the suffering of the world? Because we each have it, and we each know it. We're each connected with it. Now, while compassion is natural to our hearts, it is also contagious. In a certain way, we catch it. We return to it by being reminded from one another. As Zen Master Suzuki Roshi put it, this teaching of wake. Wakefulness and compassion is communicated from warm hand to warm hand, from the tenderness of one human being to another. And it's not really far away. The training, if you will, is to see with the eyes of compassion. If you were to even turn around and look at the six or eight people sitting nearest to you, and you could see the measure of sorrows or struggles or suffering that they have carried in their life, one after another. This natural compassion would come in an instant into your heart, if you could really look. 
it doesn't take much. And yet, with a little bit of success, we can also get afraid. We're afraid somehow that our heart isn't big enough if we really looked around, that our heart isn't big enough to hold the sorrows of this world. And we shrink into the identity that's called the body of fear, the small sense of self. As the poet Hafez from the Middle East puts it so simply, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. (laughs) So we're afraid that the heart isn't big enough. But in fact, the truth is that who we really are is vast. And the heart of compassion and love which is our birthright, is that which contains already the whole of the world. And all we're doing is opening to this truth. In fact, it doesn't take much. It can just be a moment, you know, a moment of love, a moment of compassion can turn a whole situation around. That glance of mercy I know working with a young man from various gangs and young men in the retreats that we do for guys from the inner cities, that in almost every single case, I think in every one, there will have been one person in that young man's life who really saw them, who valued them, who for a moment saw their beauty. A grandmother, an uncle, one teacher, you know, a neighbor, but somebody who saw the beauty of that person. And then they remembered. And that's the spark that allows them to walk away from a life of suffering and make some begin something new. Thornton Wilder puts it this way. Without your wounds, where would your power be? The very heavens themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken in the wheels of living. In love service, only the wounded angels can truly serve. There is some way for us in which the willingness to feel our own struggles and to touch the sorrows of life is actually empowering. It is the gift that lets us heal ourselves and be there for another. This glance of mercy is what it's called in India the moment of just seeing another being with so much compassion, as some of the great sages like Ramana Maharshi would do. He would just sit there in silence much of the time, and people would come, and he would look with so much tenderness and care, more than anyone had experienced in their life, they would say, (coughs) that that look was enough to change everything, to change their whole life.
from the great perspective of the dance of birth and death that we come into as a human being, in any circumstance, freedom and compassion is possible. And Frank, who wrote, I keep my ideals because in spite of the misery and suffering of millions, I still believe that people are essentially good at heart. It is possible for anyone, in any circumstance. Gandhi says, when I despair, I remember that throughout history, the way of truth and love has always won in the end. There have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible. But finally, they always fall. Think of it. Always. There's a saying, I think, in Italian proverb that says, after the game, the king and the pawns go into the same box. This quality of compassion is as essential for spiritual practice and freedom of heart as the air we breathe. And as we let go of the small sense of self, we gradually discover that it is who we really are. We can live. Abraham Maslow, who was the founder of, one of the founders of humanistic and transpersonal psychology, had this pyramid, he described the pyramid of human needs. On the bottom was food, and then there was shelter, and then there were social needs, and then creative needs at the top. If you had your food and your shelter and so forth, then there were the spiritual needs. But I think that that description is wrong, because even if our needs aren't met, even if we're still hungry or cold, There's such natural compassion when a child falls and is weeping or crying or frightened. Um, Even hungry people will reach to pick up that child. It is so ingrained in us. From Joseph Campbell, he tells a story because he lived for a long time in Hawaii. He said, one day, not far from where I lived, two policemen were driving up the high Polly Cliff Road. Polly is the word for the big cliffs in Hawaii. When they saw just beyond the railing that keeps the cars from rolling over, a young man preparing to jump. The police car stopped. The policeman on the right jumped out to grab the man, but caught him just as he jumped. And he was himself being pulled over when a second officer arrived just in time to pull the two of them back. Do you realize what had suddenly happened to that policeman. Everything in his life dropped away. His duty to his family, his job, his duty to his own life, all his wishes and hopes for a life disappeared. He too was about to die. Later, a newspaper reporter asked him, why didn't you let go? He was pulling you over. You would have died too. And his answer was, I couldn't let go. If I had let that young man go, I couldn't have lived another day of my own life either. 
I couldn't let go. It's there in us. Friends who have accidents or lose their homes, people who get ill, in trouble, diseases, fears, family, lovers, children, community, we all get touched. And there's something in us that so naturally responds. I know when I travel, I like to talk to people. I'll be going back to India this winter and Thailand on sabbatical. And I've told the story of we were interviewing people for National Public Radio on spirituality and social responsibility, the Dalai Lama and Mother Teresa and the president of India, all these figures. But we also found this rickshaw puller in Calcutta who spoke English, so we interviewed him. And he said, it's not me, I've been pulling this rickshaw for 15 years, that's not me that I worry about, but I support 16 other people. And I worry about when I get sick, because they count on me for their food. That's my real concern, wasn't even himself. I have this poster, which many people have seen, of Vedran Smolovich, who was the cellist in Sarajevo that used to take his cello out in the middle of the shelling um, in the afternoons and play music to the people of Sarajevo so that they wouldn't give up hope. And this is a picture of him playing in the bombed-out ruins of the National Library of Sarajevo. So you can notice as well, as you practice your meditation and as you go through your days, what comes up that's difficult, what's painful in you. And you can begin to realize that the idea isn't to move away from it, from loneliness, or fear, or boredom, or confusion, or anxiety, the kinds of things that we carry. But to take your seat like the bodhisattva of compassion in the midst of it, and bow to it like the king of the gods did to the demons on the throne, to serve it tea, and say, oh loneliness, I've run away from you for so many years, here you are now, I will offer you tea. It's the only way to be free, otherwise we keep running. And as you practice, the idea isn't to judge yourself or fix yourself, try and make yourself a more ideal human being. You've tried that long enough, haven't you? And clearly you haven't succeeded, right? The idea is to inhabit this precious human body, your own, its limbs and all the organs, the whole of it. To inhabit this precious human body and feelings and mind. And as you let yourself open your pain and your feelings and your fears in your body, start to shift and it becomes not your pain, but the pain. 
the fear, the sorrow that we all carry. My friends, my family, my loved ones, my community, it opens up to be the sorrow of the world. Remember George Washington Carver, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. So simple and universal. So the story is told that when the Buddha sat under the tree of enlightenment, that morning of awakening, he surveyed the wide world with the eyes and the heart of compassion and saw beings everywhere wanting happiness and doing the very things that created suffering for themselves and others. And there arose in him such deep compassion that he began to weep, and the tears that fell to the earth sprung to life and became Tara, the goddess of compassion. One form of Tara is on this beautiful tanka or painting on the wall here, in which she has, if you look closely, a thousand hands and a thousand arms and a thousand eyes to see every single being that is in need and to stretch out a hand to offer compassion. So here's the Buddha weeping. You do not see the river of mourning because it lacks one tear of your own. Even for our enemies in misery, there should be tears in our eyes. Or as another said, time to plant tears, says the almanac. And that's always true in the times of war. No matter what kind of war it is, it's a time to plant tears. Because it's war and it's also a long line of coffins and loss. So what to do? There arose in the Buddha this great compassion, and he wanted to teach people that there is another way. Only by meeting this human life with its pain and its beauty, with this great grace of compassion, can we find freedom, redemption. Remember how I talk about the Tibetan nuns who have been imprisoned for saying their prayers, chanting. Teenagers they were, given seven, ten, twelve-year sentences, smuggling out their prayers anyway in their poems. Picture being carried away in the night. Picture torture. You know what to imagine. You are modern darkened rooms, hours of questioning, ropes and hunger, endless nights, beatings and electric shock. Your crime, 
He wanted to recite your prayers. He wanted to live a holy life to honor your teachers. What then, if you survive, if they let you go? After the torture, they force you to grow your hair, take your robes, force you to marry. What do you do? What can you do? You pray for the enemy. You pray for the enemy. In the end, the suffering of every being touches our own heart. In the Harvard Medical School Journal in 1989, there was an article about a Tibetan doctor, Tenzin Chodruk, who had been one of the physicians in the temple of the Dalai Lama, who in 1959 was captured and thrown in prison for 20 years and tortured in all kinds of brutal ways. But yet he came out and not only did he survive, but he survived spiritually and psychologically with a heart that remained open and didn't close down in anger and fear. And so they interviewed him, what is it that allowed you to survive? And he said his first understanding was that he learned to see his situation in a bigger context. He saw that even in the most deplorable human circumstances, some human greatness could be accomplished. That in the face of enormous suffering and injustice, he could still practice love. Secondly, he saw that his enemies and torturers were human beings like himself. He didn't forget the commonality of the human condition. And he understood the law of karma, which meant that those who were being cruel to him were actually in adverse circumstances just as he was, for they were creating the karma that would bring their own terrible suffering. And rather than seeing karma as a vehicle for revenge, he understood their lives with great compassion for what was in store for them. Thirdly, it said in the Harvard Medical Journal (laughs) that he understood that he needed to let go of his pride and self-importance. He actually attributed his very survival to the ability to let go of self-righteousness, of how it should be even when it might have felt completely justified. Letting go of these feelings is indispensable, isn't it, for our spiritual journey? To put ourselves above another, it doesn't help. And finally, the last of his insights that allowed him to survive was the true understanding that anger and hatred will never end if we add to them with our own anger and hatred. They only are responsive to love. And love and compassion grow when we see with the heart that in fact there is no other way. To awaken this wish of compassion May every being be held in compassion. 
is the way of the bodhisattva, the being whose commitment is no matter if the world turns upside down, even if the sun should arise in the west, the bodhisattva has only one way. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to awaken them all, to heal them all, to serve them all. Or as Gandhi says, I believe in the unity of all people and all things. And therefore I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. Whoever gives themselves to this truth, to this way of compassion, brings beauty and power and blessings to every act of their life that it informs. Whoever commits themselves to see with the eyes of compassion brings alive in the world that which will heal it. As Mary Oliver writes in one line of her poetry, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. Except where we love, everything seems so far away. And yet the goal, really, is to be here in a full and free way in our heart. And we can do it. It is possible. Let's see if I can find this wonderful poem from Machado that uh, many of you may know. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt marvelous error that a spring was breaking out in my heart. And I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me, water of a new life that I have never drunk? Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, O marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart, and the golden bees were making white combs for sweet honey from all my old failures. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, O marvelous error, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart, fiery because I felt warmth as if from a hearth, and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. There is a simple practice of compassion, just as we did loving-kindness meditation last week. Very, very simple recitation of compassion that can be done. Sometimes you start with a person that you love and their difficulties, then you move to yourself and other loved ones and gradually move throughout the world, visioning and holding in the heart one category of people after another until you hold the world like the mother of the world carrying the earth 
in your arms. Let's do a few minutes of it since we're speaking of compassion. Let yourself sit comfortably and your eyes closed gently. Bring yourself back to the breath in the area of the heart. See if you could feel the breath moving in and out of the chest gently. And the practice of compassion is simply reciting the intentions of caring, planting the seeds of compassion, one being or one category at a time. As you sit, eyes closed, breathing gently, let yourself bring to mind some loved one, some person who you love a lot, and picture them, and feel how you care for them. And then let yourself become aware of the measure of sorrows that has been given to this human being to carry in their life. And feel the natural tenderness, how your heart reaches out when you see their suffering. And let yourself know it. And with the simplest words, in your own language, you can say simple phrases like, May you be held in compassion. May you be held in compassion and feel that tenderness that would hold them and all their struggles. Or may you be free from pain. free from suffering. Or one version says, may you be free from pain and the causes of pain. <coughs> and feel the tenderness as you breathe and wish them held in compassion. Now think of another person you love a lot. Bring them into the heart.
the same image, be aware of the measure of sorrows of their life. And tenderly, may you be held in compassion. May you be free from pain and the causes of pain. held in compassion. Now come back to yourself sitting here. Feel your own body and mind and be aware of the measure of sorrows that you've been given to carry in this life. Struggles, sometimes very great. And just as you would hold a beloved friend, imagine you could hold yourself (coughs) in the heart. May I too be held in compassion. May I be free from pain and the causes of pain. May I be held in compassion and feel what really ask for compassion in your own being and life. Now we could easily go on to other loved ones, friends, community members, co-workers, one group at a time. But let's let the heart open further for the few minutes that remain to reflect on all those who are hungry on this earth. So many young and middle-aged and old who hunger to picture them. May you be held in compassion. All your sorrows. May you be free from pain and the causes of pain. (laughs) 
And then add all those who are in danger, the children in danger, the women in danger, the man in danger. Every circumstance, far (coughs) and near, May you be held in compassion. May you be free from pain and the causes of pain. Now, as a stretch, let yourself also picture those who are causing suffering. And the suffering that they must be in to cause suffering to others. May you too be held in compassion everyone. May you be free from pain and the causes of pain. And in one version of this One breathes in the sorrows of others into the heart and lets the fire of the heart transform the sorrows into compassion, taking on the sufferings and turning them through the power of this great heart of compassion into love and with each breath out a well-wishing offering of compassion to others. Through this great heart of compassion, may I bring blessings and beauty to all on this earth, to all whom I touch. So like the loving-kindness practice that we did last week, this is a very simple meditation that you can work with at times. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it works or it brings up its opposite. I don't want to do this. It's too scary. It's too overwhelming. I don't care about those people. All those things will come. You know, it's too whatever. All, you know, every kind of inner complaint can come out. And you just want to hold all that with the same compassion. You don't have to fix anything. just have to love it. That's enough. It doesn't want to be fixed in most cases anyway, you'll find out. Like the demon there. Just say, what kind of tea would you like? Chamomile? You know? 
or English breakfast tea, right? What do you prefer? And you'll see that there's nothing more transformative, nothing more magical, and nothing more beneficial than moving through the world with this heart of compassion. Remember, Thich Nhat Hanh said that compassion is a verb. What that means is that we start in the meditation as a practice, and then as you get up and drive in the parking lot, (laughs) and move out into the world of commerce and education and politics and those things, that's the place to actually express it. Again, I thank you for coming, for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.